to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 18, as we follow along with today's lesson. Jesus is holding the material world together. One day he's going to relax. Peter tells us that this whole universe is going to go up, that it's going to be dissolved, that it will melt with a fervent heat. One big, (laughs) gigantic atomic explosion. The Big Bang is not past its future. It's going to happen. When the Lord releases the atoms and the protons repel each other and the whole universe dissolved, melting with a fervent heat, and God then to create new heavens and a new earth. What it will be like, we really don't know. We just have to wait and find out. But... All power, he said, is given to me in heaven and in earth. Awesome. Uh, We can't possibly even imagine the scope of this statement. All power is given to me in heaven and earth. Creative powers. Powers in the material universe that are greater than anything that man knows or understands. But not only in the physical, in heaven and in earth. So the powers of the spirit realm, the heavenly realm, and uh, all principalities and powers and all subject unto him. Power over it all. And thus he said to them, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Their task, their commission of the Lord was to go out into the world and teach all nations, teaching them to observe the things that I have commanded you. So the mission of the church is to carry the message of Jesus to the world, to carry to them the teachings, which basically summed up is that the spirit realm is far superior to the physical realm. That that which belongs to the physical realm is in the realm of death. The spirit realm is life. 
The things of the material, physical realm create strife, anxiety, fear, worry, misery, uncertainty. All of these things grow out of the desires that we have for physical things. Wars and strivings. The realm of the spirit is marked by love. It's filled with joy. Its effect is peace. That it is much better, far superior to live after the spirit because that's the life of peace and joy and love rather than after the flesh, which is a life of strife and frustration, anxiety. He taught that we are to forgive. He has taught that we are to be compassionate, understanding, loving. These are the things that Jesus taught. We're not to take advantage of other people. We're not to destroy others. We're not to defile others. We should live to please the Lord rather than living to please ourselves. Our lives should not be egocentric, but should be Christ-centric, centered around him. And then you'll have joy. Then you'll be blessed. Then you'll have fulfillment and satisfaction. But the life after the flesh will always leave you empty and frustrated. These are basically the things that Jesus taught. These are basically the things that we need to teach men. That you'll never find satisfaction in a life of the flesh. It leads to pain, misery, fightings, wars. But the life of the Spirit will bring you into peace, love, tranquility. Now, why do you suppose people are so upset with the gospel message? Why do you suppose that that upsets people that, to hear that you should be loving, you should be forgiving, you should be kind and considerate? Why does that upset people? Why are people so upset with, with Jesus and the gospel that he taught? You know, there are, there are many people that are just plain antagonistic towards the teaching of Jesus. They don't want to hear it. They get upset when you start to talk about Jesus. Why? Well, it must be that they are egocentric. They are out for themselves. They are living after the flesh, and they are drawn to that life of the flesh, and they don't want to hear something else because it might make them feel guilty for what they are doing. So you're trying to pass your moral standards on to us. And you have no right to tell us what we should do or shouldn't do. 
And the attitude of the world is very antagonistic towards Jesus. But yet, we have been commissioned to go and tell people. Now, though many people are indeed antagonistic, there are some who are so miserable, so miserable, that they're ready to hear. They want something different. They've tasted of the world and found that it was empty. And and they are really longing to hear a message of hope because they've lost hope. They're longing for love. They're tired of all of the bickering and the fighting and all. and, And they long for peace. And they're just waiting for someone to give them the message of the love and the peace that Jesus brings. So we're to share with all people. We're to be his witnesses. We're not to convince all people. That isn't what we've been asked to do, just to bear witness to all people. And whether or not they accept or reject the witness is is in their court. It's my obligation to let them know the truth. What they want to do with the truth is up to them and they'll be required for the truth that they receive. I think that we make a mistake in in trying to argue people into a faith or belief in Jesus Christ. I think, though, that a lot of people are mistaken as to what Jesus is all about and what Jesus really taught. I think that unfortunately, many people have been observing people who have claimed to be Christians and have not seen much difference between them and what they are. And thus the message of Christianity has been hurt by the fact that people who claim to be Christians, still are doing things that the person in the world is doing. They still are striving. They're still after, you know, living after the material things of life and egocentric and, and all. And so they say, well, you know, what makes you any different from me? So we need to be living epistles. We need our lives to be examples unto the world of the difference that Jesus makes when we surrender ourselves to him. So go is the commission and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Father is not a name, Son is not a name, Holy Spirit is not a name. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, we find that uh, in the book of Acts, they were baptizing them in the name of Jesus. Jehovah Shua. However, this formula of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was probably being also used. And when we baptize people, we usually say, I baptize you in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We cover all the bases. 
because there are those who are United Pentecostal Church of God and and they say if you haven't been baptized in the name of Jesus you haven't been baptized and they confuse young believers so that's why I say in the name of Jesus in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit in case they get hold of some of these um, rabid people who love to argue and confuse um, they say well how are you baptized were you baptized in the name of Jesus oh yeah and uh so it leaves the people without any further argument. But you remember when Paul came to the church of Ephesus and he saw that there seemed to be something lacking in their experience. And in trying to probe for what's, what's missing here, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, Holy Spirit... We've not heard about the Holy Spirit. Haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. How were you baptized? You see, it evidently was the formula that they were using because why would he question how were you baptized when they said they hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit? Had they been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that was the common practice, then they would have heard at least of the Holy Spirit. So how were you then baptized when they, when they said we had never heard of the Holy Spirit? So... Uh, it really, honestly, doesn't matter what words are said or if you were dunked forwards or backwards <laughs> or three times, as some people do, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, you know. doesn't matter. What matters is what has happened in your heart. You see, baptism signifies and sort of represents the death of the old life, the life of the flesh, and the commitment to a new life in the spirit. And if it hasn't happened in your heart, drowning you isn't going to save you. <laughs> It isn't baptism that saves, but it is that work of God's Spirit within our heart that really matters. The Lord said, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and then I am with you. Now, this is the tie. All power is given to me, Jesus said. Now you are to go. Doesn't seem right. If he said, all power is given unto me, I'm going to go, then that seems right. But you weaklings, you go. I have the power, but you go. <laughs> but the answer is, I am with you always. He is there to give us that power that we need. He is there to empower us in our witness. And, and he told them, now look, you're going to be called before kings. You're going to be brought before judges. Don't. Don't be afraid. Don't take forethought of what you're going to say and all. Because in that hour, the Holy Spirit will give you what you are to say. And it will turn to you as an opportunity to witness. And so every time they were brought before the councils, the judges, the kings, 
They used it as an opportunity to witness for Jesus Christ. Look at Paul the Apostle before King Agrippa. What a powerful witness he laid on him. I believe that Paul laid a witness on Nero. I think that that's probably what upset Nero so much, is conviction from the witness that Paul laid on him. Because Paul took every opportunity when he was brought before the kings and all to witness of Jesus Christ and what the Lord had done in his life. So I am with you always, even to the end of the world, which is the age. So the promise is the Lord's presence with us. Here we are approaching the end of the age, and we're getting so close. We're getting so close. We're moving towards it. Uh, We're getting towards the end of the age, but that's great. He said he'll be with us even to the end of the age. (laughs) The gospel according to Mark. John Mark was a nephew of Barnabas. He was a young man a young boy, actually, during the public ministry of Jesus. Thought to be around 12 years old at the time of the crucifixion. John Mark gives to us an interesting insight concerning when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. How that they grabbed a young boy there in the garden who wriggled free and fled from the garden. And it is believed that John is giving there a personal testimony of what happened to him. He went with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. However, he left them and did not continue the first journey with them. When Paul and Barnabas were ready to head out on the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take his nephew Mark again, but Paul objected. And there came a dispute between Paul and Barnabas over the issue of taking Mark. And so the dispute was so great that they decided to part company Paul would take Silas and go out, and Barnabas would take Mark and go out. And thus, there were two missionary teams instead of one. There is room for disagreements within the body of Christ, and God oftentimes uses such things to expand his work, as he did there in the case of Paul and Barnabas, creating two missionary teams instead of one doubling the foreign effort. But those disputes or differences that arise never remain. And so when Paul was in Rome, Mark was with him and ministered to him. And later in writing to Timothy, Paul requested that uh, he, uh, Mark come, uh, for he was, Paul said, of great comfort to me. So he is the author of this book that is titled The Gospel According to Mark. 
Mark was too young to really be a full eyewitness to these accounts. Mark was to Peter probably what Timothy was to Paul. And Mark spent most of his time with Peter, listening to Peter tell the stories of Jesus. And so through Mark, you actually have Peter's account. Uh, but uh, it is given to us by Mark, who listened to Peter as he would rehearse these stories. It is thought that Mark is one of the earliest of the Gospels, but uh, this is always up for dispute. Uh, these men are always trying to split hairs, and it really doesn't make any difference which one was first or whatever. But uh, that's what the, the general opinion of uh, the scholarship is. In the Gospel of Mark, we find Jesus presented as the servant of God. And uh, so as we look at it, he doesn't begin with the birth of Christ as does uh, Luke and Matthew, the other synoptic Gospels. But he get, begins with uh, the baptism of John the Baptist or the prophecies concerning uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. So the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Gospel means good news. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Going back to the prophets, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which will prepare thy way before thee. This is from Malachi chapter 3. And it might be interesting to look at the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3 because he gives us only a portion of that prophecy. Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger. He shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. So uh, here uh, the, the Messiah that they were seeking will suddenly come to his temple. Uh, the messenger, John the Baptist, uh, will come to prepare the way, and the Lord whom ye seek will then come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Jehovah of hosts. So taking the prophecy of Malachi concerning the forerunner, and then turning to Isaiah. Verse 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Jehovah. Make his path straight. So again, turning back to Isaiah chapter 40, he takes this prophecy of Isaiah in which he calls them to prepare Ye the way of the Lord, the voice, verse 3, of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare the way of Jehovah. 
Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low. Now, notice this. The prophecy of Isaiah, prepare the way of Jehovah. Who was John preparing the way for? Who did he come to prepare the way for? Jesus, who is Jehovah, Shua. Jehovah Witnesses, if they really understood a little more of the scriptures, would have great difficulty with this. But unfortunately, they don't understand the scriptures that well. And they pass over something like this. But when you go back to the prophecy in Isaiah, this word in the Greek kurios in the Hebrew is Jehovah. Prepare the way of Jehovah. Make his paths straight. They say that oftentimes when kings would travel through their provinces, that they would have those that would go before them to prepare the highways for the king's coming, to straighten out the crooked places, to fill in the culverts, the valleys, and to take down the mountains, that is to prepare the highway for the king. And that is what John the Baptist was doing in a spiritual sense, preparing the way for the coming of the king. So John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of the old covenant, of all of the prophets that have arisen, there was none greater than John. During the ministry of John the Baptist, there was a tremendous spiritual awakening among the common people. Somehow John was attractive to them and they went out to be baptized by John. John appeared to be quite a character. He was clothed with camel's hair, which could not be comfortable, and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. And so sort of an ascetic and interesting character out in the wilderness in the area of uh, the Jordan River near, uh, not too far from Jericho, near Anon, baptizing, and multitudes of people coming out of Judea, uh, having heard of this ministry of John the Baptist. It was a time of spiritual awakening among the common people, but among the religious leaders, there was tremendous skepticism. John was preaching, verse 7, saying, There comes one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John's 
prophecy concerning Jesus. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Two baptisms. The baptism of John. Baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John was the one baptizing. Water was the element in which they were being baptized. John is saying there's one who's coming after me. He's mightier than I am. I'm not worthy really to stoop down and untie his shoe. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this second baptism is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It is a baptism of power. You will receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses unto me. Jesus, notice, is the baptizer. He will baptize you. The Holy Spirit is the element in which one is baptized by Jesus. So the thought as water baptism, the, the submerging in the water, the uh, being just uh, emerged in, in water, so Jesus just emerging us in the Holy Spirit as he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days as John was baptizing that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Jesus was thought to be about 30 years old at this time. He had been spending his life in Nazareth in obscurity. Growing up in Nazareth, following the trade of Joseph, learning the trade as a carpenter. He probably spent his time making yokes and plows. Today we think more of a carpenter in, in the making houses because we have wooden frame houses. Actually, there in those days, the houses were made of stone. The carpenters were more involved in the making of yokes and plows uh, and perhaps furniture than they were of building houses. And spending that time in obscurity, no doubt going to the uh, synagogue on the Sabbath, reading the scriptures. But now we find him coming from Nazareth of Galilee, Nazareth, the town with a bad reputation, as Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Galilee was looked upon with disdain by the religious people in Jerusalem. They called it Galilee of the Gentiles uh, in a disdainful way. And he was baptized of John in Jordan and immediately Coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well placed. And so we find the Trinity, Jesus being baptized by John, the Holy Spirit descending upon him, and the voice of the Father speaking from heaven saying, 
Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. There is a group that is known as the Jesus-only uh, people, and they affirm that, that Jesus is the only one, that he is the Father, he is the Son, he is the Holy Spirit. But again, they have difficulty with passages of Scripture. The, the reason why there is a hang-up with many people concerning the Trinity is that it is a mystery. We, we can't, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. It's, it is a mystery. Uh, we can't really have anything on the human level that we can use to illustrate uh, the Trinity nor equate to it. And thus, uh, it, it's hard for us to conceive of the Trinity of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the persons of the Godhead, and yet one God manifested in the three persons. And because of the difficulty of our human minds trying to comprehend divine truths, there are those who try to simplify it, such as the uh, Jehovah Witnesses, who look only at Jehovah and deny uh, the fact that Jesus is God and the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, then there are the Jesus only who only concentrate on Jesus and say he is the Father, he is the Son. But uh, think of the Jesus only for a moment uh, as he is being baptized he descends upon himself and then he throws his voice towards heaven and declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he's a ventriloquist and uh, <laughs> you see, it doesn't, it just, you know, it's just better to leave it a mystery and say, well, yes, I believe it. I don't understand it. No, I don't. Uh, but I do believe that there is one God who is manifested in the three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I can't comprehend it, uh, but I don't need to. Uh, all I need to do is just believe it. Now immediately, the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted of Satan. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. Interesting that at the beginning of his ministry, when he was first empowered by the Holy Spirit for the ministry, the Spirit coming upon him, the first thing was to be driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, the time of testing, time of temptation, the time of confrontation with the powers of darkness. And there, in this time, the angels came and ministered to him in this spiritual battle that took place there in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, after John was put in prison, uh, 
Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Between verses 13 and 14, Mark leaves a, a gap of a year of the life of Jesus. He just, there, it passes and there's a time gap here. John fills in some of the things that took place during this year's period of time. But Mark jumps over a year of the life of Jesus. And so after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye therefore and believe the good news. Notice the call for repentance. John the Baptist called for repentance. Jesus called for repentance. Why? Because repentance is needed. It is interesting that as Jesus addresses the church at the end of the first century, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is calling upon the church to repent. Over and over, the call went out for repentance, change. And I'm sure that if Jesus was speaking to the church today, if he would write a letter to us today, as he did to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, I am certain that he would point out the flaws, the weaknesses, the places where we have fallen short. And I'm sure that his message today to many of us would be that of repentance, to turn and to become everything he wants his church to be. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, and they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, I'll make you to be fishers of men. And immediately they forsook their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further up the beach, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the ship mending their nets. Simon and Andrew were casting out their nets. John and uh, his brother James were mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee with the hired servants, and they went after Jesus. So he is beginning now to draw around himself those men who would, he would later name as apostles and who he would place in charge of overseeing the church and spreading the gospel into all the world. Normal people, men who were fishermen, there at the Sea of Galilee. Interesting, he didn't go to the religious schools in Jerusalem. He didn't go to Gamaliel to find out his finest students. But he went around the Sea of Galilee gathering just plain, ordinary people, fishermen, to place upon them the charge 
of taking the gospel to all the world. And they went into Capernaum where he was, of course, to spend the bulk of his ministry in the Galilee region. And immediately on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. This also we read at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, They were amazed at the teaching style of Jesus because he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Whenever the scribes would teach, they would never say anything with real authority. They would say, well, Rabbi Hallel interprets it this way. And uh, Rabbi Eliezer uh, interprets this way. And, and, and they would just uh, always be quoting what some rabbi said. Much like today, you go to many churches and you can find out which what the different psychologists say. And uh, it's just uh, not teaching with real authority the word of God. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. And he was teaching with authority. You've heard that this is what they say, but I'm saying to you. And so they, they were amazed at his teaching method because he taught with authority, something they had not heard before, the word of God being taught with authority. This is what God declares. This is what God says. And he was teaching with authority. And there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. Interesting. Let us alone. That is always what the evil cries out. A man with an unclean spirit crying out, let us alone. A little over a year ago, we had a demonstration here at the church. Because we had men from our church, I guess a couple years ago now, we had men from our church that were going up to West Hollywood to witness and to teach Bible studies in that community that is dominated by the gay faction. And as the result of their anger against these men who were going up and witnessing, they came down to demonstrate here at the church. Unfortunately, I was in Hawaii at the time. The Lord knew better than to leave me here (laughs) with that kind of a demonstration. And my son, who is a cooler sort, was in the pulpit that Sunday morning. But it is interesting, as I looked at some of the videos of the demonstration, the cry was, let us alone. Let us alone. 
Evil doesn't like to be confronted. They want to be left alone. Don't tell us we're wrong. Don't tell us we're sinning. Leave us alone. The very same words cried out by this man with an unclean spirit, the demon crying out, leave us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? It is interesting that in the gospel record, he is referred to as Jesus until the time at Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus was there with his disciples and he said, Whom do men say that I am? And they said, Some are saying that you are John the Baptist. You've come back from the dead. Others are saying you're Elijah. Some believe you're Jeremiah. Some believe the other prophet. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was only after that that he is then referred to as Jesus Christ. But in the gospel, he's referred to only as Jesus uh, in the Jesus of Nazareth here uh, until the confession of Peter. Son of God is used of Jesus, I think, four times in Mark's gospel, twice by demons. And then by the high priest, are you then the Messiah, the Son of God? And uh, Jesus answered, I am. He answered in the affirmative. So let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth, are you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are, the Holy One of God. I know you, the demon said. The question, are you come to destroy us? In Luke's gospel, uh, we have that case of uh, the demons uh, in the uh, the legion in the man at Gadara who again acknowledged Jesus and they said please don't send us to the Abuso and Jesus then you remember gave them leave and they entered into the herd of swine that were there on the side of the mountain at the Sea of Galilee, and they stampeded on down in the sea and were drowned. The demons recognized the authority that Jesus had over them. All power, he said, is given to me in heaven and in earth. And even while on the earth, he had power over the unclean spirits. They recognized that they acknowledged that here the question are you come to destroy us we know who you are the holy one of god and jesus rebuked him 
that is the unclean spirit, and said, hold your peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed inasmuch as they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this thing? What new doctrine is this? Not only did he teach with authority, for with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So there began to be a real stir among the people, marveling at the way he taught with real authority and marveling at the way he dealt with unclean spirits with great authority. What kind of power is this? Who is this man? who commands the unclean spirits, and they submit to him. And so immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all of the region of the Galilee. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, that is on this Sabbath day, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Uh, the forthwith the idea is, is, is right outside of the synagogue. So uh, it is thought that uh, the house of Simon Peter was adjacent near to the synagogue in Capernaum. And as a result, when you go to Capernaum today, to the synagogue that is there, which is a second century synagogue built over the ruins of the synagogue of Jesus' day, just outside of that synagogue, they have built what looks like a um, flying saucer uh, over the top of what they call the house of Peter. And uh, they, this church that they have built is a fairly new church. It's only in the last few years. It used to be that we could go there and, and this modernistic style church was not there, but uh, they would point to uh, this one house that had a sign on it, the house of Simon Peter. Now they've built this uh, church over the top of it. But just whether or not that's authentic is, you know, way out. But uh, evidently his house was near the synagogue there. And so as we're in Israel, I'll often say to the people, we are close to the spot, somewhere in this area it happened. But don't uh, get too wrapped up in the fact that a church is built and it's called the Church of the Loaves and the Fishes and so forth, you know, because interestingly enough, the Church of the Loaves and the Fishes is, is been constructed at Magdala, and uh, actually the miracle of the Loaves and Fishes took place across the lake in Bethsaida. So uh, it was hard to get over there, though, before they had the bridge across the Jordan River, so it was more uh, simple to just build the church uh, right there at Magdala and uh, say this is the church of the loaves and the fishes. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast. 
as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the house of Simon Peter. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Matthew 28 through Mark 1 when visiting thewordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you for the promise of the presence of Jesus Christ with us right down to the closeout of this age. Lord, help us to become more aware of your presence all the time. May we, like Paul, realize that in you we live, we move, we have our being. We're surrounded We're enveloped. You are the environment and the atmosphere, Lord, in which we live, in which we breathe. Make us more aware of this, Lord, in order that we might live always in a way that is pleasing to you, not wanting to offend you, and in order that we might experience that power in our times of need and weakness. Thank you, Lord, for the promise to be with us. Thank you for keeping that promise. Go with us tonight as we go our separate ways. During the week, Lord, even as you manifested your presence to your disciples, so manifest your presence to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Lord, I believe in you. I'll always believe in you. It is by faith that you've been walking into one level of spiritual maturity to another. Faith is the key to a successful Christian life. That is why the Word of God tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It was faith that led Abraham into the land of promise. It was faith that led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. It was faith that enabled Peter to step out of the boat and to walk on water. 
The question is, what might faith do in you? To order a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, Faith, or to preview a chapter for free online, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673.